Welcome to the New Ventures podcast. My name is Sanjoy Sanyal, and I'm the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique clean tech consulting firm, and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. In the second part of the podcast, we have Robin McGuckin, the Director of Partnerships at P4G, back again. Welcome, Robin. Thanks, Sanjoy. It's great to be here. Really keen to discuss our partnerships and our state-of-the-art awards with you today. Exactly. So now is the time to talk about the pioneering partnerships that you have supported, which is probably the most interesting part of the podcast. I'll start with asking you to talk a little bit about the energy transition partnerships. Yeah. So interestingly enough, uh, the energy transition is where we have had the highest number of partnerships. And I think this is because the renewable energy space has really boomed in the past decade or two. And we're seeing a lot of that renewable energy boom transfer into our partner countries. And so there are more investable ideas where we have investors that have a level of comfort with large wind energy, solar, even geothermal. So I will talk in particular about one of our partnerships that I think has had perhaps the most transformative potential given the state of play globally with renewable energy and the state of play with the African power grids. This partnership is called Africa Green Co. And it is based out of Zambia and the South Africa power pool. And as you and your listeners no doubt know, the South Africa power pool is comprised of, I think, 16 countries, if memory serves, that are all interconnected on the same grid and the South Africa Power Pool is an entity that uh, essentially operates that grid. And on that grid are essentially entities that are buyers and sellers of power. And what we've seen around the world is that buyers and sellers of power on grids elsewhere have devolved into multiple entities that can serve as a functioning marketplace for robust purchase and sale of energy. And what we've seen in Africa and South Africa is a little bit of a lag effect where our power utilities have not yet debundled into separate entities. And in part, it is because of the legacy of how they were set up as integrated utilities, buying and selling power from essentially themselves And many of those unbundled entities, unfortunately, are bankrupt and they are underwritten by the national government. And so it becomes very difficult then to justify unbundling of multiple bankrupt entities. It also then becomes very difficult to build new power plants when you cannot guarantee the creditworthiness of the buyer of power from those new power plants. So what Africa Green Co. has done is established a public-private partnership that is comprised of multiple funders and a very deep guarantee fund, as well as the government of Zambia as a part owner of this facility. And they have operationalized as a registered trader of electricity on the South Africa power pool starting in Zambia. So they have now established themselves as a creditworthy market intermediary focused solely on renewable energy to buy and sell power 
with the depth of purchasing power based on the funders and the guarantee fund to provide that level of comfort to investors in, for example, new solar and wind power projects, that they will have a creditworthy buyer of their power, and in the government, that they have a sound and stable partner that they fully understand and have modeled that can act alongside them to truly begin to unbundle the marketplace and to function as a, a true marketplace for energy trade. And I'll say, Sanjoy, this is also inspired in part by work that uh, the government of India did about two decades ago to take similar steps to unbundle the marketplace, to allow open access and make those essential first early moves that enable a vibrant renewable energy marketplace that is serving the needs of all of the customers at an affordable price. And I hope that's a relatively clear explanation. It is a very clear explanation, to be honest. You brought up a couple of points, and I'll just quickly in my response touch upon a few of them. Uh, of course, the Indian unbundling of the utilities was an enormously important moment in the regulation of the Indian energy infrastructure. But to be honest, having worked in Africa for quite some time with WRI, I hadn't quite understood the depth of this project that you have supported, because this is really trying to solve the problem for the clean energy transition. And really one major issue there is that the utility infrastructure in always, in this particular case, financially weak to support the power purchase agreements that the new uh, renewable energy companies would want. And what you have really done is to put an intermediary to be able to cushion those risks. I think this is fantastic. It is. And it's been a fantastic partnership to work with uh, partners who, you know, it is so difficult to succeed in this intersection of the missing middle marketplaces, you know, where it's both low and middle income countries and innovative new green growth ideas. And so what we found is it really takes these entrepreneurs who are willing to crawl over glass or, you know, basically work as hard as it takes to get these ideas through. And they're willing to work in country at a very much a local level. And at, with Africa Green Co, they worked for several years with, the, with Zesco, the Zambian power utility, to help them model and understand and workshop out exactly how this could work so that it is a sense bespoke to Zambia's needs and also quite functional on the South Africa power pool and bring that level of comfort so that at both the bureaucratic or technocratic level and the political level, there's that critical buy-in that this can work. And then to be able to communicate that with investors as well and have that robustness in the investment materials that lend that comfort, that sort of de-risking element to those investors. And it's, as you can imagine, quite a lot of hard work and quite a dedicated endeavor. And P4G has been extremely pleased to work alongside 
the Africa Green Co entrepreneurs in making this happen. Perfect. I can well understand that, that many of your partnerships are in the energy area, which point that you made it earlier. But I also noticed that you support partnerships in WASH and oh. especially around digital solutions for water. Those are much more emerging. Is that correct? It is. Yes. This is a much more difficult area. The return on investment is quite a bit lower for the water and sanitation sector than it is, for example, for the energy sector. And the water sector has typically been the domain of the the government, of public entities, essentially underwritten by public monies, rather than a sector that has a vibrant private sector economy, a vibrant commercial economy. And the result of this is, especially in low and middle income countries, that these utilities, these water and sanitation utilities often really struggle to have sufficient revenue, the ongoing operations and maintenance required to not only keep the system running, but to expand to meet new customer demands. One really great example of this is in something that's called non-revenue water. So non-revenue water is essentially water that has leaked out of the system. And those leakages may occur due to breaks in pipes. They may occur due to old equipment. They may occur due to sub-optimized equipment, equipment that's just not functioning well. And essentially it is water that has been treated by the water utility and is going out to customers as drinking water, but is lost somewhere between the water treatment plant and the end user. Now in higher income economies, these losses are typically 15 to maybe as high as 30%. In low and middle income countries, these losses can be considerably higher into the 40 to 50% range which is a huge both environmental, social, and fiscal challenge because, of course, if they're treating this water and sending it out to customers and not getting paid for it, then they're not making the revenue they need in order to fix the very leaks that are causing this non-revenue water. Not to mention in areas that have a shortage of water to lose all of that water after it's treated is a real challenge, particularly as we see water stresses continue with climate change. So one of the challenges that's faced is that a lot of the water sector infrastructure is buried, it's underground. And so it's difficult to tell where these leakages occur and where these system optimizations can um, lead to the greatest gains in efficiency. So as an example, one of our partnerships called Intelligent Water. They are a South Korean company that has developed a technology that essentially uses sound waves to detect where underground water leakages are coming from. This is a technology that essentially is a piece of equipment that you can put on the ground or um, uh, sort of stick in the ground um, at a small depth. And then it sends ultrasound waves down to hear where these leaks are occurring. And then the technology connects to any smartphone. So your utility linemen who are out trying to find the leak don't have to do a lot of exploratory work 
by digging and turning up you know, a lot of ground or get digging under roads, they can instead pinpoint with great accuracy where that leak is coming from and then focus their repair work right there on that site. So this has proven successful in South Korea. The um, K Water in South Korea is using this and the partnership is now working with the Vietnamese Sewer and Water Authority to test and deploy this in Vietnam. And we'd love to see it go further to other P4G countries as well, uh, if and when it proves successful in Vietnam. So this is an example of a company from a large developed country, of course, one of your donor countries, South Korea, moving to middle-income country in Southeast Asia. And you supported that, that particular partnership. Is that it? That's correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you were saying something else as well. Well, yeah, you know, something else that we're, we're seeing a lot of in the water sector that I find particularly interesting, and I think that you would, um, and, and your listeners too, Sanjoy, is we're seeing a lot of the innovations that have enabled renewable energy to uh, disaggregate and to get out to off-grid areas in a more affordable manner. We're seeing those innovations applied to the water sector now. So things like smart meters, smart grids, uh, the, the prosumer type of model, we're seeing these technologies adopted in the water sector to more distributed water grids and things like water kiosks. And so we have a number of partnerships working in that area, particularly in um, Bangladesh and Kenya. Right, so automated water kiosks in which you use mobile money to pay, are you referring to these type of innovations? Indeed. Maybe even I would suspect that, you know, companies like Sun Culture doing pay-as-you-go solar irrigation in Africa. Indeed, yeah, 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 that's precisely it. This is very interesting. We've talked about energy and water. It's time to move to circular economy. Absolutely. So in circular economy, we're focused primarily on plastics and textiles. We do a little bit with... Um, with other waste streams as well. But I'm gonna talk a little bit about plastics because I think it's one of the great challenges of this generation, particularly as we look at the amount of unrecycled environmental plastics that have leaked into, for example, the Pacific Ocean and created this huge area known as the Pacific Garbage Patch that's larger than the state of Texas. And there are a number of ways in which we have to tackle this plastic waste. And we have a number of partnerships working on those different elements. I wanna talk about one in specific that is working on waste mitigation, essentially ensuring that the waste, that plastic waste never enters into the um, waste stream in the first place. And that is a partnership that is addressing a particularly pernicious aspect of plastic pollution, which is the small unrecyclable plastic sachets that are used in low income areas. And these small sachets typically are you know, small plastic, uh, flimsy plastic wrappers that surround a single serving single-use sachets, which are prevalent in low-income areas because they are less expensive 
And so a household that is living on less than $2 or a dollar a day can afford to buy this single serving sachet. However, that plastic is unrecyclable and is typically used in communities that do not have good waste collection systems. And so these plastics find their way into the natural environment. They are a real eyesore because they accumulate along roadsides and they accumulate in rural areas and you know, blow into areas of wilderness where we'd like to see undisturbed nature. But they also contribute significantly to things like the Pacific Garbage Patch. So our partnership Cyclus has come up with innovative way to avoid this which is that they work, they're a small startup enterprise and they work with major multinational commercial enterprises such as Nestle and Procter & Gamble to bring bulk goods to these low income communities where the community members can bring their own receptacle, their own bottle or container to their local you know, small shop and dispense the same products into their own, their own containers. Um, and they come at a, because they're purchased in bulk, it is actually a price discount for the customers. So what Cyclus has found that they can do is they can offer the same product at 30% less cost than those individual sachets. So they bring a real cost savings to their end customers in these low-income areas. They're avoiding the use of these sachets. And what else is interesting is this is actually a cost savings for these major multinationals like Nestle and Procter and & Gamble. They're able to supply the product at a lower cost themselves. So it's cost savings all around, as well as really significant environmental savings in the terms of these sachets. And Cyclus has had two distribution channels. They have, as I mentioned, these small general stores that exist in most communities. They also have a mobile uh, sort of minibus, a three-wheeler, a motorized three-wheeler that can actually come door to door into these communities where they can make a regular route where members of the household can come out and refill on their favorite products as the little three-wheeler goes around town. Um, so even areas that don't have great access to, you know, local stores can still have access to these products. So it's something that's proven very successful. They have not only attracted their seed funding, they have attracted their first round of Series A finance and are expanding at a, a very rapid rate. And in which country is this? Indonesia. This is just you know, a remarkable. It's a remarkable story that you've just said. Because, uh, you know, but I'm seriously, when I went to business school, one of the things that we learned is the innovation that large companies are doing in making small sachets available. Uh, is making these products, which are earlier just being used by the middle class available to poorer people. And that was right, except at that point, you know, when we went to business school, that was a long time back, the issue of environmental plastics 
was never an issue, right? So here's an innovation, business model innovation done by these large companies, which has created uh, incredible environmental problems. And here's another environmentally innovative company coming and solving that problem. You know, I think this is just a full cycle going around. Yeah, it, it really is wonderful to see. And, you know, earlier in sort of the evolution of this kind of solution, we would talk a lot with major multinationals about the triple bottom line, right? The triple bottom line being, how do you have a product or a service that not only realizes financial gains, but also realizes environmental and social gains? And so this is a real change in what, you know, a few years ago when we were in business school, what we would have learned, which is that um, business is an environmentally extractive proposition where you're taking a natural resource and converting it into a product. But now what we are advancing here is businesses such as Cyclis that are true triple bottom line, where instead of having to pay taxpayer dollars or philanthropic dollars to realize an environmental gain, we have actual businesses that are financing on a financially profitable manner environmental and social gains. And that is the sea change that we want to see in the marketplace. That is the big shift that we want to be a part of. And we're hoping with businesses like Cyclis and other bright young entrepreneurs coming into the marketplace that we will be able to catalyze in a very significant manner. Great. Now, you'll tell us a little bit about the food and agriculture? Yes, yes. I'd love to tell you about a partnership called Sustainable Sourcing at Scale, which is taking place in India. And this is a partnership that is working with several hundred smallholder farmers to have verified sourcing areas where they can sell to major European buyers, buyers who are looking for high commodity agricultural products that are sustainably sourced, meaning that the land is used in a way that is climate positive, uh, that is both resilient to climate change and not contributing to climate change, that uh, the, these farmers are using organic products and that the techniques that are used are socially equitable techniques, meaning that there's no child labor, there's fair wages, there are benefits, et cetera, offered to all of these farmers. And as you can imagine, working with several hundred smallholder farmers, it can be quite expensive to do this essentially one acre at a time. So instead, this partnership is using verified sourcing areas, working with a combination of training a combination of verification, in-person verification, and then also using a lot of what we can have now with automated technologies to do both validation and uh, confirmation that these sustainable practices are taking place. And then taking these as a aggregated co-op essentially to then be able to offer to dedicated buyers who are willing to pay a premium for these products um, and, and have that um, as a, a guaranteed purchaser 
of these, meaning that they can find, they have the ability to finance the upfront sort of capital costs and training costs based on the certainty of having the supplier agreements and knowing that the farmers will be paid accordingly. So this is a way we can advance sustainable use of land, sustainable agriculture, and connect that in a, from a marketplace such as India to these sustainable buyers who really want to and are willing to pay that small premium for these uh, more sustainably produced goods. I understand the technology and the offering, but this is a partnership between what types of organizations? Yeah, so it is working with the governments in that region of, of India and with a major non-commercial organization called IDH. So IDH is a civil service organization that is working with all of these farmers to bring the sustainable practices and to do the validation. And then the third set of partners is the major commercial buyers in Europe that are sourcing these products. And though India is not one of those countries that you mentioned in the previous version of the podcast, you still went and financed this partnership. That's right. That's because we are doing two things with this. This partnership learns from work that the non-commercial partner IDH did in Indonesia and Colombia, two of our partner countries, and are looking to use the lessons learned from India to transfer this to Bangladesh. So we can see this is an example of replication and scaling where even though this current iteration is not happening in a P4G country, it directly benefits from the lessons that took place in P4G countries and will also be extended as a next phase into another P4G country. Let me make sure I understand this. This is so interesting. You had lessons done by one international organization admittedly, in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, in Latin America, Colombia, you brought that to South Asia, India to test it so that you can transfer it to another South Asian country, Bangladesh. Is that the sort of thinking that happened? Because this is, if it is true, this is in a global South-South cooperation at the way it should work. Absolutely. This is a great example of global South-South cooperation. And I'll be quite honest, the reason that India was the country chosen for this phase of work is that the partner, the partners were all ready to go in India. You know, they had what they needed to be, what we thought they needed and they thought they needed to be successful in India. And that is proving to be the case. So we wanted to be part of that with the intent, not only of having taken it from P4G countries to India, but then with the intent of taking it to another Global South country, which is Bangladesh. And we'd love to bring it to other P4G countries as well as those opportunities arise. And we're seeing that innovation, you know, that's a great way to go back to Africa Green Co., where we saw, uh, in a large sense, the inspiration for Africa Green Co. coming from what was learned in India and brought to the South Africa Power Pool. And then what we're hoping we'll be able to see with Africa Green Co. in the future is that we're able to transfer that model to the Eastern and Western African power grids. 
And so a lot of P4G is about this global South-South learning. But in fact, it goes deeper than that because a lot of these learnings have happened in other countries as well. You think of the advances that were done in India and South Asia for the power markets there. It was inspired in a large degree by what uh, the Nordic European countries did with the Nordic power pool and so on. So it's a wonderful way to see us, you know, as a global community coming together and having these kinds of lessons learned that can inspire greater success in additional countries. And the important thing is that in each one of these regions or countries, that model has to be very much tailored to you know, the local conditions, the local regulatory and policy environment, the local trade environment, the local economy, and equally importantly, the local environment and cultural context. So it's just a fascinating area to be working in and really exciting when you think about the potential for the future and what we're able to leverage and accomplish as we continue to globalize in positive ways like this. Great. You talked about partnerships that you fund. And one thing that I found curious is that you support crowdfunding platforms. Mm. You know, what makes your team think that crowdfunding platforms are so important? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. And I'll tell you, it, honestly, our thinking on this has evolved over the past four and a half years. As, as you and your listeners know, crowdfunding has been around for a little while now. And when P4G started in 2018, but we recognized that there were still some innovations in crowdfunding that could improve the models specifically as it applied to our partner countries and this middle missing middle. So in part that was around increasing the scale and scope of those models to get out to more of our countries and with a particular focus on being able to have these crowdfunding platforms lend to locally owned, locally led and staffed businesses. And these are the businesses that particularly struggle to secure financing, whether that is for you know, ongoing operational needs or for capitalization. And, and simultaneously to advance lending towards the smaller, younger, and even higher risk of those locally owned businesses that are typically not able to get that funding from banks and impact investors. So that has been the work that we have done with our crowdfunding platforms over the past few years. With Energize Africa, what we have done is worked alongside them to attract institutional investment to de-risk the individual investments that retail investors like you and I, people sitting at home who wanna be part of this, but don't have a lot of money and can't afford to lose that money. The institutional investors come in to Energize Africa and Plus Plus, and they're essentially providing a guarantee so that if you or I or one of your listeners want to go to the Energize Africa platform, and we see a project there, a project led by a local entrepreneur in Kenya or in Colombia or Mexico. And we think this looks like a really good 
business, I'd love to be a part of it. It's a social and environmental business. Perhaps it's a new renewable energy business in Kenya or a new sustainable agricultural business in Mexico, uh, sustainable coffee farming, for example. I would want to put my money in there, but as an individual, I can't take the kind of risk that a bank can take. I can't afford to lose my money. So the institutional investor guarantees that I will at least make my money back. And what Energize Africa is proving is that not only will I make my money back, but I will earn interest on that money. It may not be a huge amount of interest, but a small amount of interest, which means that I can use my money instead of in a philanthropic way, meaning I can only use my money once as a grant to support, say, food and agriculture in an African country. I can use my money over and over again to support, to support multiple ventures in food and agriculture over time. And that, what we believe can, that is what can unlock a significantly higher level of impact. And we're seeing retail investors such as you and I and how, you know, households in Europe, uh, across Europe and, and the UK, they are realizing that they can invest, that they will get their money back and that they are doing something really good with that money. Right. And in our podcast, we've done a few sessions on crowdfunding, which, is, which sort of adds to your, um, the points that you're making. You've had other partnerships in new models of financing, right? Not just crowdfunding. Yes, we have. And we have had similar lessons learned in these partnerships. We have a number of partnerships that have looked to create or to advance a systematized financial mechanism. And so these have included our partnerships like IIX Women's Livelihood Bond, which have taken green bonds into our partner countries. And partnerships like Finance for WASH, which have looked to create a co-investment mechanism that increases the level of retail and SME lending in the WASH space amongst national and regional banks in our partner countries. And what we found with these partnerships is that we've had great success in helping them to enter into the marketplace in our countries, but that these kinds of mechanisms are becoming more and more common and more and more they are familiar to the impact investor, DFI, and even more conventional banks so that there is an increased level of comfort in lending to these kinds of mechanisms. So at P4G, we are, we are moving away from funding these kinds of funds because they are becoming more mainstream. And that's really what we wanna see of all these models. We want to see them become mainstream. And where P4G is focused on is those really new models that are coming into the marketplace that we want to help take to the level that, for example, green bonds have realized in the past couple of decades. So we will be focusing more, less on funds of funds and crowdfunding and more on those new innovative models that we, we don't know about yet because they haven't been mainstreamed. Got it. This is, makes sense. And uh, I mean, it makes sense from this point. The way I, I will say it myself is that you fund 
partnerships which establish business models. And as these business models get established, financing opportunities open up. In the initial phase, you supported a few of these financing setups yourself. But as the business models get more established, you know, the, your need for supporting financiers reduces. You have to, but you have to keep on continuing the support to business models. That's right. You know, you have described a lot about the examples of successful partnerships in four key areas. But you also have a thing called state-of-the-art partnerships. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yes. Our state-of-the-art partnerships are a different kind of partnership. The state-of-the-art partnerships are a recognition award. There's no funding that comes with the award because what we are looking for is partnerships that have already accomplished what it is we want our partnerships to accomplish. So we are in a sense looking for these global examples that are already out there of the kind of successes that we want our partnerships to exemplify. And so for our state-of-the-art awards, we have a global competition and we have a very high-placed jury of judges who evaluate these partnerships. They have to do a competitive pitch, typically at a global forum, such as COP26 was our last. And then once they, that we announce uh, winners for each one of our sectors, each one of our five SDGs. And then we have one global award for the best of all partnerships. And we are looking to bring those partnerships into the P4G family to help them to uh, mentor our P4G partnerships, to help all of us to learn what they have learned along the way. Um, and in some cases, some of our state-of-the-art partnerships have gone on to become P4G scale-up partnerships where they've taken the idea that was successful, that they won the award for in one part of the world, that they've brought it to another part of the world, to a P4G partner country specifically, uh, working alongside P4G. Right. As you have listened to these successful state-of-the-art partnerships, could you tell new emerging people who are putting partnerships together, what are the lessons, you know, the one or two things that you that have stood out for you as you listen to these state-of-the-art partnerships? Yes. So it takes a really dedicated, highly vested team of entrepreneurs to be successful. What we found in our most successful partnerships is we can pinpoint at least one person who has put in an extraordinary number of hours, is a person of extreme skill and intelligence who has gone to great lengths to understand not only the technical side of this, of their, of their prospect, their business prospect, but also the regulatory side has done that hard work to understand what is the state of play globally around this, this business model that they want to put forward and really explored with a lot of stakeholders, the pros and the cons of coming forward with the business model. And that person has to be backed up by a team of entrepreneurs who are just as vested and just as hardworking in order to be successful. 
And that's one of our key lessons. Another is that local entrepreneurs are essential. So all of our most successful models have involved extremely localized successes, meaning that the, those entrepreneurs at the forefront have come from these countries, understand these countries, and have spent a lot of time working at the technocrat, bureaucrat, um, entrepreneurial level, as well as working with politicians and others to truly get that level of buy-in, that level of stakeholder uh, engagement. They have worked with and talked to impact investors. They have worked with and talked to other grant providers, other accelerators like P4G. So these are people who have really done their homework. And that homework is extremely locally contextualized because until you have that, you're not gonna be successful. So I think those are two of our biggest lessons learned. Hardworking people who stomp the pavement yes. and, and go and shake a lot of hands. That's right, that's right. <laughs> That sounds like uh, the correct recipe for success, at least from your partnerships, right? That's right. That's what it takes. Right. With that, uh, thank you very much, Robin. It was wonderful. And I hope it has uh, helped a lot of people understand why partnerships are important and what it takes to su make successful partnerships. But of course, also people on the public financing side to understand what it takes to support innovation and entrepreneurship. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure, Sancho. I, I always enjoy our interactions. I always end up learning something and enjoy the level of, of critical thinking that you bring to this field. So thank you so much for all these interesting questions. I hope it has proven really insightful for your listeners. <laughs>